Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we will continue our study in the Thessalonian correspondence of Paul. As you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. When we face trials, we tend to wonder why God would allow us to suffer hardships of various kinds. And I'm sure, in spite of their endurance, the Thessalonians were no different. Even as we continue trusting in God's goodness and his wisdom, we wonder why. Why does God permit his people to face persecution? Why does God not cause my friend or family member to believe in the gospel? Why does God allow my goals to be frustrated, my co-workers to mistreat me, my neighbors to ignore me, and so on and so forth? Great or small, we wonder, why does God not make all things new right now? And not only do we wonder why, we also tend to wonder how long this present state of affairs will persist. The refrain, how long, O Lord, is common in Scripture. Consider these verses from the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 13. And in Psalm 35, 17, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction my precious life from the lions. Again, in Psalm 79, verse 5, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And in Psalm 89, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? We see similar prayers in Isaiah, from the prophet Habakkuk, from Zechariah, and in Revelation, and other texts as well. In every age, God's people have faced trials and tribulations. Sometimes they faced discipline for their sins, and at other times they first faced persecution from their enemies. Always they wondered how long this state of affairs would go on. God has an answer, but if we want it to be an exact time and date, we're not going to like the answer. But if we can learn to receive his answer with contentment, we may be able to see that he offers us a better assurance for he responds by reminding us of his demonstrated faithfulness, his unbreakable love, his perfect justice and righteousness, and the certainty of his promises for us. Then he says, as he says to the martyred saints in Revelation 6.11, rest a little longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. But this evening in the text before us, the Apostle Paul gives us a similar answer as he assures us of God's love and justice. In fact, in giving us this assurance, he does not seek to prove that God is loving and faithful despite the reality of suffering. Rather, Christian affliction is the proof of God's love and justice, for it demonstrates that we have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God, and it shows the righteousness of God in his judgments. So if you found your place in Second Thessalonians, would you follow along with me from verse 5 to verse 12? Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, Lord, we ask that you would work in our minds and our hearts to assure us of your love and your justice, that you would impress upon us the truth of these things so that we might indeed go forth from this place more confident in your perfect wisdom, your perfect grace to us. Father, we pray that you would cause us to be a people who look with hope to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, people who love his appearing and long for it. May we be a people who find hope in that certain truth in the midst of all the difficulties that we face in this life. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in reality, we're picking up our exposition in the middle of a sentence in the original letter. This is sometimes hard to represent in English, so the translators, wisely in my view, begin a new sentence in verse 5. But from verse 3 to verse 10, we really do have a single sentence, which in English would run too far and too fast. Nevertheless, I, I do want you to know that this is one flowing thought that begins back in verse 3. And so let me read to you the New King James Version, which I think can help us grasp the sense of flow of the text. Listen to verse 3 through 5 in this translation. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as, is, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. The text goes on from there, but the point that I want you to grasp is that Verse 5 flows naturally from verses 3 and 4 so that we see what is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, namely the fact that the Thessalonians, in the midst of all of their persecutions, are enduring with faith. It's the combination of these two things that turns out to be the evidence that Paul cites for God's righteous judgment. I hope you can see that seamless transition there, or at least hear it from the, uh, from the rendering in the New King James. So let's look at this then and think about this proof, this evidence. What does Paul present to us as proof of God's righteous judgment? What is the evidence? As I said, it's the combination of enduring faith and unjust persecutions. It is the endurance of the Thessalonians in the midst of these persecutions. In Paul's words, your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. That is what Paul cites as the evidence of God's righteous judgment. Recall from last week that about one or two years had passed since Paul's first letter and his visit to the Thessalonians. But the Thessalonian Christians are still, they're kind of in the same situation. They still face hostility and persecution. Nevertheless, they're continuing to hold fast to their faith. And they've demonstrated their faith through works of faith and labors of love. In short, they were enduring through affliction. Paul wanted them to know that this was proof, positive, 
of God's love for them, of his justice in accounting them and judging them as worthy of the kingdom. We're going to come to that idea momentarily, but I do want to dwell first on this idea of it being evidence. In the New Testament, this word evidence is a unique term in the original. It does not occur elsewhere in the New Testament, but we do find a similar term in a verbal form. So just as I can use the word evidence in English as a noun, or I can use it as a verb saying uh, someone evidenced something, the same is true in Greek. And I can use the word then evidence and look at those verbal forms and see the same idea represented. There's a text that then helps us to understand what Paul is saying here because it deals with a similar theme of God showing or evidencing his righteousness to us. It's found in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, verse 21 through 26, we read these words, which I think may be familiar to many of you. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And now here's the word show. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In this passage, we see that the word show twice is presented by Paul as a reference, uh, reference to what God has done in sending Christ to die on the cross. In that act, God showed, demonstrated, evidenced, we could say, his righteousness. We can understand how this works. God gave a law in the past that showed what was right and what was wrong. So Israel knew what constituted righteousness in God's eyes. However, Paul is writing of a new display of God's righteousness in the death of Christ. By putting Christ forward as, as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for sin, he demonstrated his righteousness because he did not leave sins unjudged, but he also remained faithful to his promise to show mercy to those who trust him. In this display, God showed that he is both just and the one who graciously declares sinners to be righteous through faith in Jesus. So in this surprising way, God showed his righteousness. There are other examples, helpful examples that we may look to, and I'll just briefly mention one that will help to fill out the picture We'll not turn to it, to, to them all, but uh, in 2 Corinthians 8.24, Paul called upon the Corinthian believers to show the genuineness of their love to other churches by giving generously to others who were in need. Earlier in that text, he spoke of those who boasted of the genuine love and faith of those Christians. And so then in verse, eight, uh, verse 24 of chapter 8 in that letter, Paul encouraged them to demonstrate, to show the genuineness that these others boasted about with an act of love. So when we speak of evidence in this text, we mean a tangible act of someone which proves that something is true. It is a proof whether others receive it or not. For example, we can supply many proofs that the earth is round. And the quality of these proofs does not diminish because some in our, our age might stubbornly insist it's not. In our passage this evening, Paul cites the faith amidst affliction 
as evidence of God's righteous judgment. And even if some people will look at that and say that's evidence of nothing, God's perspective, and should be true in our perspective as well, it is clear evidence, it is proof positive of God's justice, his righteous judgment. It's surprising, just as the cross is a surprising display of God's righteousness, this also is surprising because in this display of God's justice, we actually see injustice being perpetrated against the people of God. And yet Paul tells us this is proof. This is evidence of God's righteous judgment. We're going to see a little bit more how that's evidence of it. But we, so let's, at, let's look at that now then. The, how is this evidence of God's righteous judgment? How is it that the suffering of Christians, the affliction of Christians and their endurance is evidence of God's righteous judgment? Well, on the one hand, we're going to see that God... Um, uh, that this, this is, uh, constitutes uh, a good reason for God's judgment upon those who afflict Christians. We're going to see that later on. But I think that what we see here at first is something a little bit different in Paul's thinking. I think that what Paul is saying is that the Thessalonians, that, 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 that this is evidence of God's justice toward them. Not yet looking at his justice towards those who afflict them, but his justice towards them. How is that working? Well, Paul says that your affliction should actually reassure you, essentially, because it is evidence that God has counted you worthy of the kingdom. And here we have to think about what does it mean to be counted worthy of the kingdom? You see, we, we hear that and we probably initially recoil or we think, well, is, uh, is somehow, are the, somehow the Thessalonians earning their salvation? Are they proving that they deserve entrance into the kingdom? And I, I uh, would submit to you that that's not what Paul means at all. The idea of being counted worthy of the kingdom of God is like our previous term of, uh, uh, with regard to evidence. is not a common term in the New Testament, but we do find it in a couple places that will help us again to understand what is meant here. The first place is Luke chapter 20 in verse 34 through 36. You probably know the scene in Luke 20. Let me give you the context. Jesus is engaged in disputes as people are putting him to the test. And in one of those disputes, some Sadducees come to him and they, they pose to him a difficult problem about the resurrection. They tell him about a woman who, um, who uh, had a husband who died and um, the custom at that time was that if, she, if her husband left no offspring, she would marry the next brother in line. And uh, on and on down the line, through seven brothers it goes, never a son. And the question they pose is, in the resurrection, whose, um, whose husband will uh, she be? Well, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they think they've really stumped Jesus. We don't need to deal with all the particulars of that issue tonight, uh, but Jesus does respond to them, and this is part of his response. He says in verse 34 through 36, the sons of this age, uh, the sons of this age neither are, are married and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy, is our term, to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What this does show us here is that the idea of being considered worthy of the resurrection is, it, it really is equivalent to this idea of being considered worthy of entering the kingdom. This idea of one who um, is uh, granted eternal life, one who receives eternal life from God. But it doesn't yet um, give us the full sense of uh, how one is counted worthy or where this worthiness comes from. We can look to another text that might help us to see this in, in Acts chapter 5, again in one of Luke's writings. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, I can paint the picture again for you. Here the, um, 
Uh, the apostles have just been arrested. They've been beaten and they've been freed for preaching the gospel. And in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There's the, all the instances in the New Testament where we see this idea of being counted worthy in some way. And we see that there's a very consistent usage that you're counted worthy of entrance into the kingdom, of attaining to the resurrection, and uh, particularly in Acts, the way in which they were counted worthy, that demonstration, the, the way in which they knew that God had counted them worthy, was that God had uh, permitted them to be uh, persecuted for the sake of the gospel. So that Christians, well, the idea is that when Christians see their affliction and they recognize that my suffering, my persecution, is for the sake of the gospel, because I'm holding forth the gospel and I'm remaining faithful to what God has called me to believe, I know that that's coming from God's hand as a clear sign of assurance, a proof of his righteous judgment that I have been counted worthy of the kingdom. Now let's bring that together then with what we read in Romans 3. And that will help us then to see where this worthiness comes from, that it doesn't come from ourselves. The worthiness is not intrinsic to the person. It does not come from a person's own righteousness. We know this from many texts in Scripture, not least the one that we read in Romans 3, that, that there it's, it's uh, the, the, the justification that we receive, that, that act by which God declares sinners to be righteous. That is an act of God's grace. It is received by faith. In fact, our faith is counted to us as righteousness. And here we see people who are counted as worthy. Do you see the idea is that you have an account, if you will. You have a debt to a holy God. But what is counted, what is credited to your account is righteousness that doesn't come from you. Or in the, the language of Thessalonians, worthiness that doesn't come from you. It's credited to you. It's counted to you. You are counted as worthy or considered worthy, even though intrinsically you don't have a worthiness within yourself. And the proof that God has done that is that he allows you to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean that you have to be persecuted or uh, put to the rack. It can be a simple insult from a, from a neighbor or a friend. It can be simply living in a society like our own where Christians are generally uh, uh, not regarded well. And you just know that you always come under that and yet you hold fast and you persevere and you remain faithful through it all. And you know that that's not something that you're doing by your own power. As this text even makes clear to us, look at the way Paul prays in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Who's making us worthy? It's our God who's making us worthy. Paul prays that God will do that, who, that he will make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, not by your power, but by his power. To what end? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gracious gift that he grants to us. You see, the idea that of being counted worthy is not having to do with an intrinsic worthiness that comes from within ourselves, but it's a gracious gift of God whereby he counts us worthy. And this is one of the ways that the Thessalonians could know that God indeed had counted them worthy. Their persecution didn't earn them God's favor, but it was a proof that God, by his free and unmerited grace, had done this work in their lives. So if we draw it all together, we can summarize the logic of this whole sentence all the way back to verse 3 like this. Paul thanks God for the enduring faith of the Thessalonians because it proves that God has judged them worthy of the kingdom on the basis of their faith 
and according to his grace, for he considers it just as we'll see to repay those who afflict his people and to grant relief to his persecuted people. Therefore, those afflicted for the kingdom are the ones counted worthy, and those afflicting them are the ones who will face judgment. We're going to turn now and think about that judgment that they will face and consider that in more detail. This is a major theme, as we've seen in 1 Thessalonians and also in 2 Thessalonians, now that we come to it, and we need to return to it here. I want you to consider three things from this text that we must understand about God's judgment. First, the judgment of God is righteous. Right? We saw that, his, uh, that he, the fact that he permits his people to suffer is proof that he has counted them worthy. But we also see that his judgment is a righteous act. It's not unjust. It's not cruel. It is righteous. Second, the judgment comes at Christ's return. It's a very important point that we must get right. We must respond rightly to that fact that the judgment comes at Christ's return. And third, the judgment involves eternal separation from God. We need to understand what that judgment is and what, it is, what eternal separation from God truly constitutes. There's one more thing I want to put before you then is, uh, as we say often, and we must remind ourselves again and again, it is those who believe the gospel who will escape this judgment. It is not those who prove their worthiness through their own merit. It is those who believe the gospel. So let's look at this. Judgment of God is righteous. Paul shows that the righteousness of God, of God's judgment, by appealing to the principle of lex talionis. That means an eye for an eye, or, or an equal repayment. The principle is enshrined in the law of Moses, in Leviticus 24, verse 17 through 22. I'm going to read that text for you. Leviticus 24, 17 through 22. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. I am the Lord your God. You see that principle laid down in the law of an eye for an eye. In our day, we malign this. People will ridicule this. They'll say an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But in the whole passage, we see that the memorable phrase really captures a reasonable concept of retributive justice. In Israel, if a man willfully killed another man without cause, he paid with his life. If a man killed another man's animal, he replaced the animal. He restore what was lost. God considers this just, and so do you. How do I know that? Because when we are wronged, we naturally feel that we should receive an appropriate restitution. If someone hits your car on the way home from here, you would expect that person to pay the amount of money that is necessary to repair what was lost, to restore what was lost. It's a principle of appropriate restitution based on the wrong. We have it in our legal system, as it was in their legal system. When we do not see this, we recoil at the injustice, even when we're not affected. When we see in the news that convicted criminals are being released without any real consequences for their actions, we say, where is the justice? I submit to you that the reason we recognize that is because God has put his law in our hearts. Even if we resist it, we know what is inherently just. In this context, the Thessalonians are unjustly persecuted for rightly recognizing God as God and submitting to him 
with the obedience of faith. They have graciously proclaimed the gospel to their community so that their neighbors might repent and believe and be saved. But their persecutors have not believed this gospel. As Paul puts it, they do not know God and they have not obeyed the gospel. And so what we're going to see then is that God is going to apply this principle of retributive justice. He's going to repay them what they deserve based on their actions. Now, we can be assured in the midst of this that Jesus told us this must be so. In John 16, verse 2, he said to his disciples, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Many of the persecutors of the Thessalonians thought they were doing God's work. In reality, they did not know God because they did not recognize his son, Jesus Christ. And yet, they persecuted, thinking that what they were doing was right. A day will come when God will judge justly. As verse 6 says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, God will render an appropriate judgment, one that is just according to the principle of justice that he laid down in his law and that we all recognize in our hearts and in our own justice systems here on earth. He considers this just. We should also, for we apply the same standard in other contexts. Why should we not apply it here? The judgment of God is just. It is righteous. We also need to recognize as Christians that the judgment of God comes at Christ's return. The judgment of God comes at Christ's return. When the idolatrous king of Israel sent men to arrest Elijah, Elijah twice called down fire from heaven to consume those men. We might sometimes wish that God would judge with the same immediacy for us. This is not his will in our case. Elijah's situation was unique. For us, God has promised that the fire comes with the sun when he comes again. We see this here in 2 Thessalonians in two places. Look at verse 7, the second half of verse 7. Those words, in the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. Here, Paul is telling the Thessalonians that the, the, the judgment that is promised comes at the revelation of Christ from heaven. And at the, at the beginning of verse 10, you see the same thing. It all comes when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we recognize that the judgment comes at Christ's coming? Because as Christians, we are repeatedly commanded to leave vengeance to God. Even all, as far back as Deuteronomy 32, verse 33 through 35. God said this to Israel. In fact, he had Moses teach it to Israel as part of a song that they were to remember throughout all their generations. And at the, toward the end of that song, as after he recounted all of the ways in which they would be persecuted by their enemies and then the ways in which God would finally restore them and vindicate them, it says this in verse 34 and following, Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. 
Moses taught those words to the Israelites so that they might remember that the Lord is our avenger. He will surely judge. He will surely bring retribution. But we must leave that work to him. He does not put it in our hands. Paul taught the very same thing. He wrote these words in, in, uh, in his letter to the Romans. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. We see Paul using that very language from Deuteronomy 32 and the teaching of our Lord Jesus himself about how we are to be toward our enemies, how we are to treat them and respond to them. In so much as it depends on us, we are to live peaceably with them. We are to do good to them even when they do us harm. Why? Because the job judgment, the righteous judgment of God, comes at Christ's coming. It doesn't come through our hands. It comes through his so we must always leave room for the wrath of God. God has stored up his judgment for those who refuse to believe the gospel. And his judgment is perfect in accordance with his perfect power and wisdom. Any one of us would fail to mete out judgment in a way that is just. Inevitably, our policy would either be too lenient or too severe. Either we would judge like those judges in our court system who refuse to penalize criminals, or we would act like a military commander who responds to his enemies with overwhelming force, far beyond what is deserved. God calls us to trust that his judgment will be perfect, and it will be delivered at exactly the right time, and in the appropriate measure when Christ returns. So we trust, so we resolve to live peaceably with all, as much as it depends upon us. The judgment of God comes at Christ's coming. We must leave it to him. Now, the third thing that we see about that judgment that Paul reveals to us here is the, some of the nature of that judgment. This doesn't depend only on this text, but this is a helpful place to see it. The judgment is, is uh, described as eternal separation from God for unbelievers. But it's described as eternal salvation to those who trust him. Look at these words. I'll pick it up in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And here we see Jesus described as coming with his mighty angels, being revealed from heaven, coming in flaming fire and inflicting vengeance. But we also see the nature of that uh, judgment described in terms of eternal destruction, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is important to see. The nature of that, that punishment is eternal. It is destruction. And it involves a separation from God. Removal from his presence. Now I want to 
look really carefully at those, that, that language of being removed from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Because what it does is it echoes Old Testament language about this very thing. It echoes Old Testament language. When you think of the face of the Lord, what we ought to think of is God's favor towards us. As we hear in that benediction of Numbers chapter 6, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. But there's another sense in which the Lord turns his face not towards someone with favor and grace, but against that person. And all the way from the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 3.8, we see that the response of people who know that they have uh, offended Almighty God is that they hide from his presence, or literally, from his face. That's what we have here, is away from the face of the Lord. It's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3.8, and it's what we see in other places in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, we are not called to be people who flee from the face of the Lord, but rather, in repentance, turn to him. King Hezekiah said, for example, to the people of Judah in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9, The Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. In this sense, then, we see the eternality of the judgment Paul speaks about and the fact that these people who have not obeyed the gospel and repented will be removed from his presence, that is, literally removed from his face. And thus, there's no more opportunity for repentance. At the coming of Christ, the time is up. So there's urgency to repent now. The second line there is also one that echoes an Old Testament text in Isaiah chapter 2. Here, Paul speaks about uh, fleeing from the glory of his might. And it's actually, it, it, it it's, uh, exactly renders a phrase that we see three times in the Greek translation of, of Isaiah chapter 2. And nowhere else in all of Scripture, nowhere else in the New Testament, nowhere else in the Old Testament, which is a strong indication that Paul had Isaiah chapter 2 on his mind when he was writing this text. Why do I bring that to your attention? Because I want you to see what Isaiah 2 is about. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2. Not the whole thing, but I'll pick it up in verse 6. He's talking here about the, the prophet's talking about the day of the Lord, a subject that Paul has spoken about in his first letter and will speak about and speaking again about right now. In verse 6 and following, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, so that what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. That phrase there, from the splendor of his majesty, in the Greek translation, is identical to what Paul has written here. From the glory of his might, we could say. And you see it then again in verse 19. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And once more in verse 21, he speaks about them entering the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. 
You have that idea of fleeing from the splendor of his majesty or the glory of his might. And that there from Isaiah chapter 2 is echoed in so many passages concerning the final judgment that God will mete out on all the earth. People will flee from the glory of his strength, as it is in the Greek translation, or from the glory of his might. It's those same terms. Why do I bring that before you? Because for God's people, the glory of his might, his glory and might, is a, is, is a treasure for us. It's a sign of his ability to save. The prophet Micah would speak about a day when God would shepherd his people in glory and might, in the glory of his strength. Human beings forever have, since the fall, since, since Adam and Eve sinned, have rebelled against God and fled from his face and fled from the glory of his might. That will be, the, that's the beginning and it will be the end of sin. But God's people are people who turn toward him and seek his face and hope in his glory and his might. Ultimately, those who refuse to repent will get what they were seeking. God will remove them from his face, from his presence, from the glory of his might. But what we need to see, is we should not want that. No human being should want that. Because the one who wants to be away from God fails to see that it's his face tor tor turned toward us in his favor and his strength and his glory that is our salvation. And so for us, as God's people, we see this and it is a great tragedy. It's a thing that should cause our hearts to burn within us with sorrow for those who refuse to believe the gospel and should motivate us not to hatred and to seek vengeance against those who might mistreat us, but to hold forth the gospel still, seeking their salvation, that they might be saved. But we need to do it in a way that is faithful to what God has revealed. There really is a judgment. There really is an urgent need to repent. There's no way to paper over this and say that, well, it's not really so, or it's figurative in nature, and there's no eternal judgment and no eternal destruction. We need to be honest and clear about this truth. Because this is what people face if they will not repent and believe the gospel. But there's still time. Because judgment doesn't come, ultimately and finally, until Christ comes on that day. And so until that day, we call all men and all women everywhere, repent and believe the gospel. Because there is a judgment, but there is a salvation. So this is what Paul has uh, to set before us. Well, let me conclude with this. I want to conclude with some admonitions for us, and some applications, way that we can, ways that we together can respond to what Paul is saying to us. And I draw it simply from what Paul himself does as a response to these truths. As he speaks about judgment, and he speaks about the salvation, and he presents the current afflictions of the Thessalonians as proof that God has counted them worthy of his kingdom, he himself declares that he prays in light of this truth. Look at verse 11 again with me and following. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three, th uh, 
three things that I want you to see then as we apply this. First, I've already given you one. We need to be a people who repent and believe. For We started with this idea of asking the Lord, how long, O Lord? And God also has a question for us. For example, in Exodus 10.3, he said to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And in Numbers 14.27, he said to the people of Israel, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? In the New Testament also, Jesus repeatedly said, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? God would like to know how long to. How long will we delay? It's a question for us, but it's a question that we must pose to others as well, in a loving and gracious way as we invite them to believe, but nevertheless in that urgent way. God will not be late in doing all that he has promised, but he is patient. Nevertheless, time grows thin. So we sometimes think that the most urgent thing is that God should deliver us from present hardship, but from God's perspective, the most urgent matter for all mankind that we should repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no trial or tribulation that God cannot resolve. Even our death is not insurmountable. For the one who has life in himself is able to give life. As one theologian sometimes quips, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. So let us be people who live by faith, and let us be people who call others to repent and believe. And what I'm really driving at is let us also be people who pray to that end for those who have not believed the gospel. Let it, let it be our urgent prayer and our urgent plea as we have opportunity to share the gospel with others that they might receive this salvation through faith. Second, we respond by refusing to seek vengeance on our own, but also by praying that God would enable us to have this attitude, this attitude that shows mercy as people who have received mercy, that is attitude that says, I will not repay evil for evil. I know that that's in the Lord's hands. And part of that prayer is one of just declaring our trust that the Lord has it all under control, that he's going to handle it appropriately, and that nothing that comes our way is something that's unforeseen by him. Then as we reflect on what Paul says, we pray for one another, people who have repented and believed, people who are seeking to live according to Jesus' teaching with regard to uh, loving one's enemies, and we pray for each other that God may make us worthy of his calling and may fulfill our resolve for good works. Paul made it his habit always to pray for the Thessalonians in this way, asking God to do what he was already doing and to do more of the same. His hope was that God would do it all the more. And at first he stated that their endurance was evidence. Now we see that he's praying that God would make them worthy of what was already evident in their endurance and faith. Paul continues to pray along the lines. He doesn't say, I'm satisfied with, uh, with, with what you've been demonstrating as of yet, and so I'm going to move on and forget about you. He continues to pray that God would do more and more in their lives what he's already doing. We ought to pray for one another and for other believers in this same way, that God would grant to us the endurance of faith. Sometimes we see friends and family members, neighbors or acquaintances, struggle in the Christian life. For one reason or another, they're facing hardship, that from our perspective, seems as if it might threaten their faith. People sometimes say, once saved, always saved, in a flippant way that disregards the real possibility of falling away. It is true that God will preserve his people faithful to the end, but we must not use this as a license to flippant uh, attitudes towards apostasy. 
there is a very real possibility that people who received the word with joy at first will fall away because of the cares of the world, because of the tribulations that come in this life. Didn't Jesus teach us that in the parable of the sower? In other words, it's true that God is sovereign over all things, including our faith and our perseverance. And it is true that he promises to preserve his own faithful to the end. But this is all the more reason why we ought to pray toward that end. Because he is sovereign, and we ought to be aligning our thoughts and our prayers according to his declared will, his revealed will, and praying along those lines. So as you see people struggle in the Christian faith, pray that God would make them like the Thessalonians. And as you yourself struggle, pray and ask others to pray for you in the same way. Lastly, as we pray, let us pray for one another that God would cause us to abound in good works of faith and labors of love. Look at the way Paul prays as he seeks that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And not so that the Thessalonians might be exalted and glorified for how good they are, but so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very often in our hearts, God puts within our hearts a desire to do something, a good work, to serve others, to demonstrate our love for others, and we don't know how to bring that to fruition. Share that with others. Ask them to pray that God will fulfill that resolve. Talk to someone about how you might do that and seek to do it and do it well but not for your glory and not apart from prayer, but in dependence upon God to bring to fruition that, which, that resolve which he has put within your heart already. Pray, let us pray for one another that God would cause us to abound in works of faith and labors of love, not for our glory, but for his and according to his grace. In this way, we will live out our Christian life in a way that is faithful, in a manner that is enduring, in a way that is proof that God indeed is working in our lives and demonstrating to us and to the watching world that we are his and he is ours by his grace, through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let us all always pray then that we might remain steadfast in our hope in the coming of our Lord and Savior in these ways. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we do thank you for what you've done in your, our lives, for the way in which, ways in which you work by your grace, the way in which you enable us and cause us to endure. We know, Lord, that the various trials that we face in this life are too many, and too great for us to persevere in faith in our own strength. Apart from your great power in our lives, we would all fall away. But you are mighty, O oh Lord, and you are merciful. So we thank you and praise you, and we pray that you would cause us to endure faithfully to the end, as you have so many generations of Christians before us, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Corinthians, Paul, the apostles, and many, many generations for 2,000 years. Lord, may we be counted among them by your grace and mercy counted as people who are worthy of the kingdom through the worthiness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This we pray in his name. Amen.